Hello and welcome to A Glimpse into the Future. My name is Rigas Hadzilakos and in this podcast series we explore with some of the world's leading experts how new technologies and ideas can help us shape our future. In this week's episode I talk to three members of the World Economic Forum's Council on the Future of Neurotechnologies and Brain Science. Dr. Michael Platt, Professor of Neuroscience, Psychology and Marketing at the Wharton School, Professor Nitish Thakur, Director of the Singapore Institute for Neurotechnology at the National University of Singapore, and Dr. Neil Cassell, Chairman of the Focused Ultrasound Foundation. Next up, Dr. Michael Platt on Neuroeconomics. Michael, thank you very much for, for taking the time. Uh, you work in a very interesting place between neuroscience and behavioral science and something called neuroeconomics. Uh, what, what is it exactly? And, what are the most significant findings uh, in this space up, to, up until now? Right. Well, it's a, it's a pleasure to have the opportunity to talk about this today. Uh, neuroeconomics is a relatively young field. It's been around for just a bit more than 15 years, and it really represents the marriage of uh, the mathematical formalisms of economics and the behavioral experimental approaches of psychology and other social sciences and contemporary neuroscience techniques. So it really is this uh, amalgam that uh, endeavors to try to understand the biological mechanisms that cause us to behave the way we do, to make the kinds of decisions we do. And that, you know, extends everywhere from everyday decisions like what you choose to eat all the way up to whether or not to save for retirement. Um, And... This field has grown rapidly uh, in the last 15 years where there were only really a couple of papers before the year 2000 that had been published, and it's it's really just grown explosively uh, with especially the advent and application of non-invasive brain scanning techniques that allow us to basically peer inside the heads of people while they are making various kinds of decisions. And we've really learned a tremendous amount about the hows and whys of our own decision-making. Some of the things we've come to understand are why uh, we sometimes make what would seem to be irrational decisions. We we might avoid risks. Uh, We might choose things that are beneficial in the short term but not in the long term. But a couple of the really important findings to me are that – One, we can actually really measure how much an individual values something, how much they prefer uh, a product or uh, a gamble or uh, a particular outcome just by scanning their brains. And that's pretty remarkable um, and offers the opportunity to try to understand uh, why people do the things they do and also to predict human behavior, sometimes on a quite massive scale. Uh, A second, uh, I think, really important finding is that very mechanistic principles of brain physiology limit the number of options we can usefully consider. So uh, brains are expensive, and every time uh, a brain cell, a neuron, fires, that's expensive. And so uh, brains have become adapted to being very efficient. And one of the ways that that brains do that is to essentially normalize or rescale the range of activity uh, according to the, the options that are available. This is sort of in the in the you know in the realm of perception why we can see 
different shades of contrast in bright or dim conditions. And the same applies for decision making. And one of the extensions of this is that uh, if you are walking to a, a supermarket and there are thousands of options before you, then each neuron that might be carrying information about every one of those products or items is inhibiting the others. And that, of course, makes it much more difficult to make a decision, and it takes longer, and sometimes we're not uh, as happy with the decision we make. And really, for my mind, the, the third kind of most important insight uh, that's come from neuroeconomics is that our brains are really wired to be social. So uh, just it's kind of obvious that we almost can't help but be sensitive to the individuals around us, what they're engaging in. Uh, this leads to contagion or mob behavior. Uh, we care about other people we, uh, and we'll help some people out and not help others. And what we've learned in the last 10 years or so is that there are very specific possibly dedicated uh, circuits in the brain that process social information, and this social information can override other sorts of information in terms of how we actually make a decision and the things that we choose. So for, for me, those are three of the big, uh, big findings. Uh, they have lots of uh, implications and applications um, that, that I hope we'll have the opportunity to talk about. Yes, definitely. Let's let's do it because this is fascinating material. It reminds me a bit of Isaac Asimov's psychohistory in terms of predicting human behavior, combining all of these different elements that you <laughs> that you mentioned. So if you think a bit about how are these findings going to be used? Uh, you think in the next 10 to 50 years, if they were to uh, to use these opportunities to to make our society better? One of the really major advances in neuroeconomics has been the uh, demonstrated capability to predict market-level behavior from uh, basically neuroscientific data gathered on a handful of participants in the laboratory. Uh, most of these studies have been brain imaging studies, typically bringing in a couple of dozen undergraduates into the laboratory, and uh, remarkably, uh, you can scan their brains in an MRI machine and not only predict their own decisions, probably adding about 10% predictive capability above and beyond what you might uh, be able to predict just from their verbal report, what they say they like or what they would buy, but you can actually predict uh, the behavior of thousands of people uh, from that brain data gathered on just a handful of subjects. And um, that's pretty remarkable. Uh, I think that that can be used for a variety of ends. Like that can be used to uh, fine-tune advertising, to fine-tune product design. Um, so in, in, in those senses, can be used to uh, increase uh, corporate profits, but also potentially increase uh, consumer satisfaction. This kind of approach can also be used to uh, improve human health by uh, tailoring medical information, for example, to help people to change behaviors that are unhealthy, like uh, quitting uh, smoking or eating uh, more healthfully. You know, up till now, it's, I think, been limited in its application because most of the studies have relied on brain imaging, which requires access to an MRI machine, typically in a hospital. It's expensive, it's time-consuming, it's cumbersome, it, it cannot be deployed uh, in real-world consumer settings. But mm -hmm. We are, I think, seeing the advent of new sensors, wearable sensors, that might not provide as um, 
precise uh, data on each individual, but um, if they're validated against brain imaging, for example, these other kinds of sensors outside the body, outside the head, uh, everything from heart rate to pupil dilation to uh, brainwave signals, um, these may also be used to predict behavior on a large scale. And um, I think that's very, I mean, it's, uh, you know, presents some potential hazards because it means we have access to but uh, think about some of the, the wonderful opportunities that are there. So think about individuals who have to make decisions in critical uh, time pressure situations, say uh, in the military or you know, first responders in firefighting, if they can have real-time feedback on uh, their internal states, essentially that their brains are sensing things that they're not aware of yet, um, that information could be relayed to them or it could be aggregated again across individuals uh, to help people who have to make decisions in a split second that uh, can have life or death impact. So, um, you know, I think there's a really incredible potential there to help uh, human society and human health, but again, we have to, you know, again, be very careful about how we, how we deploy these technologies and, and when and where. So if you, if you go at Try to. I know that a lot of scientists prefer not to make these kind of predictions, but you are definitely in a, in a position to make uh, uh, safer assumptions about the future than many of the rest of us that don't have this these insights. Do you do you feel that in the next 10 to 15 years we will, in some way, and I don't want to get philosophical here, still control our decisions as much as we do today, or do you feel? Uh, and that will be maybe even more empowered by understanding how we work, uh, or do you think that we will have lost more of this? Yeah, I think it's um, this is a really interesting question. Uh, I, I, I mean, I, I am a believer in in human autonomy, and um, but we we do have to make sure that we take pains to recognize autonomy and to make sure it is not limited. So there's going to have to be some kind of fail-safes built into um, these systems. I mean, I do see a future where uh, potentially many of these technologies, many of these um, pharmaceutical uh, advancements can be used to help everyone. Um, so, so perhaps uh, advances in our understanding can uh, improve our educational systems, giving uh, more individuals uh, the opportunity to advance and have a, a meaningful career and have a meaningful life. You know, we're, we're facing many, many kinds of challenges from uh, automation and computerization of uh, and computing and basically is, is going to potentially uh, take away many uh, jobs that we traditionally have, uh, you know, come to expect uh, as being there. So there, there's, it's a very dynamic landscape and I think that one of the biggest concerns, not only the concern about uh, autonomy and whether our decision-making might be, uh, you know, our own autonomy might be reduced, but we also have to make sure that uh, we have, we provide equal access to um, these technologies uh, because, you know, right now, enhancers, whatever they might be, are largely only available to those who can afford it, and that's not only within kind of uh, developed Western societies, but if we compare uh, developed Western societies to developing societies, where individuals might not have that kind of access, and so uh, these are these are uh, some of the really important challenges 
that we face as scientists and as societies. But we're, we're going to see an ever-increasing closeness of technology and biology um, and you know, mm -hmm. the future scene. But, but if you just, just take a look at where, you know, who, who's making big investments in neuroscience? Well, they are many of the biggest uh, companies in the tech world, right? And so uh, they are developing their own neuroscience divisions or they're actively uh, creating them to, uh, to because they foresee a future where, where our brains and our bodies are becoming more closely intertwined uh, with technology. Next up, Professor Nitesh Thakur on neural prosthetics. So, Dr. Tagore, you work in an exciting frontier where neuroscience meets engineering. Uh, what are some of the most uh, important or inspiring things currently emerging at this space? Neuroprosthetics is a result of modern research and technology development in the field of brain-machine interface. Mm -hmm. uh, the main exciting progress has been that now through novel technology, we can connect to the brain. We can connect to the brain, in brain cells, and understand what brain or mind is trying to do. And its beautiful application is in prosthetics, where using the information, the signal from the brain, we can control a prosthetic arm or a person who has lost the limb, such as an MPT. So this is the field of neuroprosthetics and how brain and mind can connect an artificial limb. By the way, there are some other applications, for example, we are working on, where brain to hand or limb connection is made for people who have nerve injury as well, because through accidents, they lose the arm function even though arm is intact, and we can do the same thing. So I think this is a very exciting field because it helps people who have lost their limbs due to injury, accidents, uh, and so on, and it's a very global problem, so I think it should be helpful to everyone. So this is already technology-ready, right? So this is already being used uh, in what scale today? Yes, so of course this is a what I would call the frontier, right? So in a frontier means the research and demonstrations are at that very emerging stage. This research has been going on for almost 10 years, at least I have been involved in this for 10 years. And while it initially started with a lot of technology development and then demonstration on animal models, a little bit more fundamental, now it is starting to reach demonstrations in patients, which means that it's a technology that is ready for and been tested on the first of the subjects, human subjects, patients, to show that it works. However, I must admit, it is very esoteric, a little bit expensive, requires special procedures like brain surgery and so on. And therefore, it is not ready for broad public distribution. So what do you see these technologies in the next 10 to 15 years' time? Do you feel they will still be uh, in a research development stage, or do you feel it will be more widespread in society? Oh, there is no question that the technology's demonstration will be very strong within the next five years, meaning its feasibility 
and its application for sure will be demonstrated and technology itself will have matured. So one challenge will be, can you justify clinical operation or surgery on what type of patients? So, you, you know, we must have the medical and patient and the overall ethical decision to do this must be properly done. And so that is one challenge. And the second challenge will be economic, which will be probably a bigger challenge because solutions can be quite expensive, which combines brain surgery with advanced prosthetic limb. And so it can be affordable to a limited population. I personally don't think that the clinical ethical problem is a big one because it's just something we must do it correctly. But there is no barrier. Uh, it is because patients will definitely benefit in a big way. The demonstration has already been made. The economic problem, though, is a bigger problem because today, even in uh, major countries, healthcare cost is a is a factor. And uh, in a broadly in the global climate, of course, healthcare cost is very high. So I believe in 10 years or more, we will be looking for economic solutions that are applicable to wider population. And that is why in Singapore, we targeted connection to the nerves on the arm rather than directly to the brain to minimize the cost and minimize the surgical trauma and help larger global population. So I see that in future, there will be two directions. One, in major countries, uh, richer countries, the direct brain interface, because it feels more exciting. The brain is, of course, our final destination, but the cost and economics will prevent that wider spread. So therefore, the second direction will be directly to the periphery connection to the nerves so that the cost and uh, surgical challenge will be less, and it will be much widely available to global community. What ethical challenges do you think arises from the possibility of having, you know, millions and millions around the world with neural prosthetics? Can you imagine this going the wrong way for the wrong reasons? Uh, people trying to become cyborgs or connect themselves for, to take advantage of something rather than just to help them with some problem? I personally think that that fear is overblown. Uh, it's a legitimate question, but people have a higher expectation somehow that we are, even in next 10 years, somehow in any way capable of reading the mind or influencing the mind, and it's just simply too far in scientific and technical feasibility. Let me give you an example. The brain has 100 billion neurons. Today, we can record from few hundred. And even with the major brain initiative, we will be able to do few thousand. So our ability to connect to the brain is so, so limited that we are able to target things like prosthetics, but not much more. Even it's very difficult to target language, speech, anything. And to something like a mind, it's just an impossibly unrealistic scientific proposition. So I feel what has happened is that people have 
sort of projected the fear going too fast, too quickly, that somehow we will be able to interface to the brain and mind more rapidly. And I personally think that it's something we must be aware of, be careful about, but there is just scientific and technological feasibility is very low to achieve that right now. Now, that's the risk, but let's consider the reward. I give the example of prosthetics, but can you imagine affecting many other diseases like Parkinson's, stroke, even in dementia and Alzheimer's through stimulation, improving the functional outcome? And those will affect, you use the word millions. That's where hundreds of thousands and millions, you know, in prosthetics, about hundreds of thousands of people, and in dementia and Alzheimer's, millions of people will benefit. And all we will be able to do is to improve that interface a little bit better. But our ability to wrongfully tap the brain and mind is at the moment, within 10 or 15 years, just simply not scientifically realistic because of the mismatch. Again, just to conclude, the mismatch is the brain is made up of 100 billion neurons and you know, 10 to the power 15, which is a humongous number of synapses. And we have ability to record from hundreds to thousands. We are too far away from being able to wrongfully connect to the brain. Next up, Dr. Neil Cassell on focused ultrasounds. So Dr. Cassell, thank you very much for your time. I would like to ask you, you work on this focused ultrasound treatment. Uh, what is it exactly? Could, could you explain it in non-technical terms for, for our audience? Sure. So, focused ultrasound is a non-invasive alternative or supplement to surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy that has the potential, and I emphasize the word potential because a lot of this is futuristic or aspirational. It has the potential to improve the outcome and decrease the cost of care for millions of patients around the world with a variety of serious medical disorders. So the way it works is analogous to using a magnifying glass to focus beams of light on a point and burn a hole in a piece of paper or a leaf. But with focused ultrasound, instead of using an optical lens to focus beams of light, an acoustic lens is used to focus multiple beams of ultrasound energy on a point deep in the body with a high degree of precision and accuracy and sparing the adjacent tissue. Where each of the individual beams goes through the tissue, it has no effect. But at the focal point where the beams converge, there are a variety of interesting and important biological effects on tissue. And today, scientists understand 18 of these biomechanisms. The fact that there are so many different mechanisms of action is what creates the opportunity to treat a whole variety of medical disorders. And these mechanisms include destroying tissue, either by heating it or creating micro shock waves and disrupting cell membranes, including 
drug delivery in high concentrations precisely to the point in the body where they're needed and minimizing the systemic side effects. It includes uh, stimulating the body's immune system and enhancing the effectiveness of immuno-oncology drugs and so on. There's a, there's a whole variety of these, uh, these mechanisms. The point in the body where the beams are focused, where they concentrate on that focal point, is selected uh, by imaging, either ultrasound or MR imaging in real time, and the treatment itself is guided in real time or controlled by imaging as well. Very interesting. And what is its what's the stage of the technology today? Uh, what's our the biggest successes we have seen with it? Okay, so focused ultrasound is an early stage technology. It's in its evolution where MR scanning was 30 years ago. At that time, nobody had heard of MR scanning, but today virtually everyone we know has either had an MR scan or knows somebody who's had one, and MR scanning has revolutionized diagnosis. Focused ultrasound has the potential, and again, I emphasize potential, to revolutionize therapy to the degree that MR scanning revolutionized diagnosis, but it's early in its evolution. Today, there are about 500 clinical treatment and research sites around the world out of a potential of 10,000. In 2014, 15,000 patients were treated around the world with focused ultrasound. In 2015, it was 25,000. In 2016, it was more than 50,000. And as we know, the development and adoption of medical technologies occurs at an exponential pace, and we're right sort of at the beginning of the inflection point of that curve on the way to treating hundreds of thousands of patients per year. And would you say there have been some some very strong success stories that you could uh, tell us? Uh, is it more in the oncology field? Uh, what is it, its biggest applications to date, even though it's, as you mentioned, quite an early stage? As some background, there are almost 80 indications, clinical indications, in various stages of research and development and commercialization today. Ten years ago, there were only three. And most of these are early stage, but still more than 20 have achieved regulatory approval around the world, five from the U.S. FDA. And most of the patients have been treated with prostate cancer and uterine fibroids. And if I was to say what's the most important one to date, it's essential tremor, which in terms of numbers of patients is small compared to the oncology applications, but it's really important because the results are virtually immediate and they're dramatic, and it's a technology. It proves out the technology in terms of its safety and efficacy because it's the highest bar. It's treating something deep in the brain 
through the intact skull and skin in an awake patient with a high degree of precision and accuracy. So anybody can understand if you can do that, you can use the same technology more readily to treat things that are outside of the body, like tumors of the breast or tumors in more forgiving locations, like the liver. We are particularly excited about the brain applications of focused ultrasound that includes movement disorders of a central tremor and Parkinson's disease, brain tumors, psychiatric disorders of uh, uh, OCD and depression, epilepsy, and so on. The other area that we're particularly excited about is the use of focused ultrasound to enhance the body's immune response and augment the effectiveness of the new immuno-oncology drugs. Fascinating applications there. Are there any negative effects of this treatment? Has there been a rigorous research uh, to, to ensure that there are no major negative effects? There, there, are, there have been negative effects. There have been complications, including deaths. But the, the complications are the same that we would note with other ablative techniques, whether it's surgery or radiation or radiofrequency. And in fact, the studies that have been published to date have demonstrated that the complication rates are equivalent or less than other invasive therapeutic approaches. Most of the techniques, but not all, have been related to user error. It's a new technology as time goes on. Not only do the users get more experience, but the technology itself is evolving to make the treatments safer. So huge potential, not significantly bigger uh, risks involved. Uh, so what are the biggest obstacles in deploying this technology in a, in a larger scale? Uh, the, the, the major impediments or obstacles are those associated with the introduction of any highly disruptive therapeutic technology and includes additional rigorous scientific evidence of safety and efficacy, particularly long-term durability of these treatments, and cost is required. That's one barrier. The other barrier is uh, getting regulatory approvals. Even more challenging than that is getting reimbursement from government and commercial insurance, uh, increased awareness of the patients and the physicians. Most people have never heard of focused ultrasound. It's been called medicine's best kept secret. And then in addition, unfortunately, there are turf battles between the different medical specialists and between the manufacturers of legacy therapeutic equipment like uh, radiation therapy equipment or robotics and the new focused ultrasound manufacturers. So there are a, a lot of obstacles that have to be overcome. It takes a lot of time. There's a lot of work left to be done, but the potential truly is there. So do you believe that in the next 10 to 15 years uh, we will have seen uh, this focused ultrasound treatment uh, be quite widespread, or do you feel it will still uh, take a bit more time to, to be adopted uh, worldwide? No. Um, our vision is that in 10 to 15 years, focused ultrasound will be a standard of care, a mainstream therapy that will be used to treat 
literally millions of patients with serious medical disorders around the world. That's that's our vision, but there's a lot of work that needs to be uh, performed. There's a lot of obstacles that need to be overcome before that vision becomes a reality. In terms of cost, uh, you mentioned that at this stage it's still quite costly. Is it something that you see decreasing quite fast? Or can we expect that in the next 10 to 15 years this will be a, a therapy for not only those that can afford it, but uh, mainly almost everyone that needs it? Focused ultrasound is an example of a technology that fulfills the holy grail in that it not only has the potential to improve outcome, but also to decrease the cost of care. And even today, while it's early stage, compared to other invasive approaches, it is substantially less expensive. And we expect, as always happens with these technologies, that as time goes on, the cost will decrease even further. That was Dr. Michael Platt, Professor Nitesh Thakur, and Dr. Neil Cassell on the future of neurotechnologies and brain science. My name is Rigas Hadzilakos, and that was all from this week's episode of A Glimpse into the Future. <laughs>